0: Welcome back to the Prospect interview, where we speak to the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Rebecca, assistant editor at Prospect. This week we'll be talking to the American historian Carol Anderson about the secret history of America's much debated Second Amendment. The amendment, now enshrined in the country's Bill of rights, asserts the right of well-regulated militias to keep and bear arms centuries later in today's world many hours have been spent picking apart the language of the second amendment and some advocate that it ought to be abolished entirely carol anderson became a household name in america under donald trump when her best-selling book white rage which looks at the history of white backlashes that would always follow after advances in black power became a bestseller many considered it a vital reading for the trump years now she's come out with a new book the second which argues that at the heart of the Second Amendment lies white supremacist ideas. Carol Anderson, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Uh, Thank you so much for having me, Rebecca.
0: So thank you so much for writing The Second. It's such a richly told book about the history of the Second Amendment. So in your introduction, you tell the story of two men, um, one named Philando Castile and another named Cliven Bundy. What are their stories and how does that relate? How do they get to the heart of your argument in the second?
1: And so Philando Castile was a black man in Minnesota and he was pulled over by the police and the police asked to see his ID. Philando Castile, following the National Rifle Association's, the NRA's guidelines uh, on what to do when you're pulled over by the police, said Sir, I have a license to carry weapon with me. I just want you to know that. Um, I am now reaching for my ID as you have requested. And the police officer began shooting and killed Philando Castile. So you have a black man who is killed by the police simply because he has a weapon, a license to carry weapon. Not because he was threatening the police officer, not that he pulled it out on the police officer, just killed for merely having a weapon. On the other hand, you have Cliven Bundy. Cliven Bundy was a white man um, out West who had been illegally grazing his cattle on federal property and not paying any of the fees for grazing his cattle on federal property. So law enforcement showed up to, to, to get the fees from him. He called out his posse, his group of armed uh, so-called militia, and they stood the federal officers down. Um, so the the kind of the way that Cliven Bundy was able to brandish weapons and threaten federal law enforcement and just walk away. So I juxtapose that you have and the NRA uh, was virtually silent on the killing of Philando Castillo, virtually silent. Um, eventually after being pushed by its black members said, uh, we believe everybody has the right to bear arms. Uh, with Clive and Bundy, th- there was this celebration of the way that they stood those federal officers down. There was this celebration of these white men bearing arms and and with that, you saw what I'm getting to is that the Second Amendment is really about anti-Blackness. It's not about guns. It is about the fear of Black people in American society. It is about seeing Black people as a threat to white Americans and the need to be armed to in order to, to contain that threat.
0: Yes. And Philando and Cliven are both modern day examples, but the second takes this idea back to the very history and founding of the nation. Um, So tell us a bit about the Revolutionary War against the British.
1: And, And so the... You know, yes, this book took me back to first the 17th century, um, and, and, and the rise of slavery in the United States and the laws that were coming up and the structures that were coming up to contain that slavery, to contain black people. When we get to the Revolutionary War, What you see is that in 1775, the colonies had banned black people from joining the army. They could not join the army. The Earl of Dunmore, who was Virginia's royal governor, issued a proclamation saying that any man who was enslaved by one of the rebels, if they joined British forces, they would be emancipated. They would get their freedom. So you had then the Americans sitting up here absolutely terrified as black people are rushing to the British because what black people see is freedom, freedom being held right there. So close and freedom is what they want. And you had the 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 Americans just going, they're turning our Negroes against us. and the British began winning several major victories. And, and, and you didn't have enough white men joining the Continental Army to be able to match what the British were bringing. It eventually compelled the Americans to open up and integrate the Continental Army. And, and so you had, and so what they were doing is, because there was slavery in the North as well, they were offering freedom to the black men who would fight for the Americans. You will get your freedom if you fight for us. And so they were matching Lord Dunmore. So that, that army became the first integrated army. It was amazing. And they stiffened, they stiffened, And and so it compelled the British to hit what they called the soft underbelly, which was the south. They were headed south. And so you had this invasion of Georgia and they took Georgia like that. Just boom. General Howe didn't know what hit him. He's like, what happened? It's like you got beat. Um, And so now the British were were headed toward Charleston, South Carolina. So George Washington sends one of his emissaries, John Lawrence, who was a son of South Carolina, down to to Charleston to to beg those folks to arm the enslaved. Because South Carolina did not have enough available white men to be able to repel what the British were bringing. The British had 8,000 troops. South Carolina only had available 750 white men. The rest of its white men it had deployed as the militia to contain that sizable black enslaved population. And so you had Lawrence going, we don't have enough white men for what the British are bringing. You have to arm the enslaved. The South Carolina government said, we are horrified that you would ask us to do something like this. We are absolutely alarmed, you know, and we're wondering if you would ask us to do this, whether this is a nation even worth fighting for. And so what South Carolina was was absolutely contemplating was surrendering to the British uh, because it was more, they were more afraid of enslaved black people, armed enslaved black people than they were of the king, than they were of being treated as traitors. Now begin to think about that, that what we have here happening in South Carolina is this, this push for it is more important to have slavery. It is more important to own human beings as property. It's more important to elevate white supremacy than it is to have a strong United States of America. So this thing that we see coursing through America's history has a long, long legacy.
0: Absolutely. And that comes up again when it is time for the Founding Fathers to make the Bill of Rights and the Second Amendment. Um, And you describe the Second Amendment as a bribe paid again with black bodies. Um, So tell us the story behind the making of that and What were the conditions and compromises involved?
1: Oh, absolutely. So um, there was initially the Articles of Confederation that came out of the Revolutionary War. But the Articles of Confederation weren't working. They really weren't working. You had the states who had tariffs against each other. They were printing their own currency. They were making their own foreign policy. There was no real United States of America. And so, because this thing was was really creaking, um, a group came together to, to ostensibly to reform and revise the articles, but it was actually to scrap the articles and create a constitution of the United States. Well, in that drafting. You had, a, you had basically the southern colonies playing a hardcore game of extortion. We will hold the United States of America hostage unless we're able to uh, create a strong foundation for the protection of slavery and the protection of the slaveholders. And so you see these compromises happening. Uh, the the three-fifths clause, uh, which deals with representation in Congress. So that the South looked up and they said, oh, Pennsylvania is much larger than we are. So is Massachusetts and New York. We are consistently going to be outvoted in Congress because we don't have enough people. And so in this case, they wanted to count the enslaved as people for representation in Congress. Well, the North went, If they're really, if they're people, then clearly they can vote in your state. Uh, And they were like, no, (laughs) but for this purpose, they're going to be people or we will walk. There will not be a United States of America. And so the three fifths clause where the enslaved were counted as three fifths of a human being for representation purposes in Congress. You also saw the extension of the Atlantic slave trade for 20 years. And you had the Fugitive Slave Clause. All of these, the North knew, were just reprehensible, but they kept saying, it's the sacrifice we have to make in order so we have a constitution, in order that we have a United States of America. Well, then that constitution had to be ratified by the states. And it was during that ratification convention, the series of ratification conventions, when we get to Virginia, and Virginia was one of the major holdouts, James Madison rushes down because Patrick Henry and George Mason are going toe to toe to scuttle this constitution. One of their major concerns was that Madison had put control of the militia under the federal government and 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 that is because that militia, although so vaunted in the 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 lore of the revolutionary war of being able to fend off the British and fighting for democracy and stopping a foreign invasion, actually they weren't reliable sometimes they show up sometimes they wouldn't sometimes they fight sometimes they take off running so it was to in order to instill a sense of discipline in that militia that caused Madison to put it under federal control. But the militia was essential as a slave control mechanism. The The militia in the South was absolutely necessary as a means to contain slave uprisings because Black people wanted to be free and you needed that militia in order to quell that. So what Patrick Henry at, was doing was saying, we will be left defenseless with that militia under the control of the federal government. You've got you've got people from Pennsylvania and Massachusetts. You know that the North detests slavery. Do you really think they would send the militia down here to help us when the slaves revolt? Do you really think they would do that? We will be left defenseless. And so what did they began to press Madison on was to create a bill of rights, a bill of rights that would help them uh, curtail federal power and that would also protect the militia and state control of the militia. And so when you think about the bill of rights, so in that first Congress, Madison's drafting the bill of rights. And and so you think it's got uh, freedom of the press, freedom of speech. Uh, The right to not to have a state-sponsored religion, Uh, the freedom to have a fair and speedy trial, the freedom not to have illegal search and seizures, the right not to have a a cruel and unusual punishment. And then you have this thing, the right to a well-regulated militia for the security of the (laughs) state— Uh, this outlier, I mean, it reads like an outlier because it is. It is the bribe to the South to not scuttle the Constitution because Henry and Mason were threatening to have a new constitutional convention. And what Madison was afraid of is that that would open up a Pandora's box um, that would allow a new Articles of Confederation, a much weakened central government to become the new United States. And he's already, we've been there, we've done that, we know it doesn't work.
0: So I think looking back, a lot of people could assume, reading the Second Amendment, that the militia they were referring to there was, you know, Part of the grand American libertarian tradition of defending yourself against foreign invaders, but your book makes it very clear that the beneficiaries of that clause were white men seeking to suppress slave uprisings.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, it, it comes through in the in the debates. It comes through in terms of the laws that were already there, uh, disarming or banning uh, the enslaved from having weapons, but also banning free blacks from having weapons. So this fear of black people is just coursing through the narrative of early America.
0: And um, let's talk about the enlightenment. It it is now remembered for its many influential ideas on freedom and liberty and kind of people run governments. Um, But it was very clear then that only a select group of white people could be the beneficiaries of those ideas. So, what was the impact first of the Enlightenment on Haiti, and how did what happened in Haiti then affect what happened in America?
1: Uh-huh. so. One of the things that, you know, so this is the age of revolution. So you have the American Revolution. You have the French Revolution. Well, then you have the Haitian Revolution. And this was the revolution that whites in America believe should never happen. Those ideas about freedom, about liberty, about people-controlled governments, that was a whites-only affair. And that the enslaved thought that they had those rights, that the enslaved believed that they could be free, uh, that they could have a government that was responsive to them was just anathema. And so you had this massive uprising in Haiti, starting in 1791, the Haitian Revolution. It sent shockwaves throughout the United States. And the founding fathers were just petrified, horrified. They could not believe, you know, and they were saying things like... The wrong people are getting these ideas that this is for them. Uh, the, the, and and, and uh, George Washington is going, it is absolutely lamentable that the way that the that blacks are in this uprising, lamentable. No, what was lamentable was slavery. What was lamentable were the conditions that, that wreaked havoc on the bodies of black people, on the lives of black people. But that seeing black people in those terms just was uh, impossible uh, for this group of enlightened men. And so you started seeing these laws coming up as as you had uh, white slaveholders from Haiti fleeing with their enslaved and coming to the United States. In Baltimore, Baltimore opened up the public armory uh, for whites because all of these Black Haitians were coming up there who had these ideas, these dangerous ideas about liberty and freedom. And so whites had to protect themselves. You had this fear coursing through Virginia uh, about these ideas of liberty and that they were saying, and, you know, and now our Negroes are being really insolent. They're getting those ideas from those from those folks from Saint-Domingue and. No, those folks had those ideas about liberty and freedom already. Seeing black folks being able to really pull it off was just empowering, empowering. And, and one of the major elements, and you see in this empowerment, was Gabriel's revolt in 1800. Gabriel was an enslaved man who managed to Organize a multi county, multi city uprising, um, that was supposed to happen in late August. And they had it planned, and on the day when they were all going to rise up, and, it, and he, he envisioned a multi racial, uh, republic where you got paid for your labor, um, where racism did not exist, um, and where it was for all freedom-loving people. I mean, it's just that vision got him killed. There was a massive thunderstorm that, that messed up the logistics of people being able to get to the designated spots, to be able to get to the treasury, to be able to get to the armory. Uh, Governor James Monroe finds out about it the day of. He is just petrified. You know, you see his letters to Thomas Jefferson going, I just found out about this. I am absolutely alarmed. Oh, my. Um, and, And they called out multiple militia to put down Gabriel's revolt. And with that, you have mass public hangings as a signal to Black people, this is what happens to you when you think you can be free. And I want to juxtapose that. You know how we started this conversation, juxtaposing Philando Castile with Clive and Bundy? Well, right? Well, (laughs) right? So... In this era, we also have uprisings by white men. We have Shays' Rebellion in 1787, uh, where white men attack the Massachusetts government because they don't like the taxation policy, um, and they don't like the seizure of land for not paying your taxes. The militia refuses to put down Shays' Rebellion, and, and in fact, some members of the militia joined Shays' Rebellion and and that led Boston merchants to have to hire a mercenary army to put Shays' Rebellion down. But the folks in Shays' Rebellion, they weren't hung. They, they, you know, a few were, were prosecuted. There were some convictions, a handful of convictions, and those convictions were, were, were commuted. The same thing with the Whiskey Rebellion in 1794, where white men in Pennsylvania rise up against a federal tax policy and tar and feather uh, federal tax officers and attack the major tax officer. It leads George Washington to have to get on his horse and lead a force in to put down the Whiskey Rebellion. But they're like, ooh, George is coming. Okay, we're done. Um, But still, those folks who tortured federal officers, who attacked the federal government, a handful were arrested and convicted. Their sentences were commuted. But when African Americans rise up for their freedom, the response is really horrific. Public hangings, disemboweling, decapitations with their heads put on spikes, lining the road as, as signals about this is what happens when you have your quest for freedom. And all along, you keep seeing these additional laws coming up saying they cannot have access to guns. They, they cannot have access to guns. Um, and, and strengthening the slave patrols and the militias They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Yes, and let's, let's move forward to when chattel slavery was abolished. Um, it didn't seem to have changed much for Black Americans in terms of their Second Amendment rights.
1: Right. And, and, and um, after the war is over in 1865, you have President Andrew Johnson, who hated black people, uh, providing almost a blanket amnesty to the leaders of the Confederacy, who then Reasserted themselves in their state governments and passed a series of laws called the Black Codes. The Black Codes were about controlling Black labor, but also about controlling Black people. And so a key element in the Black Codes was disarming the Black population. And so you see the rise of these paramilitary groups who are working in league with these neo-Confederate governments to disarm black people. Black people had those guns from the war. And so it was like, uh-uh. And, and that, that battle to disarm them led to a slaughter, years of slaughter, years of massacres, of bloodshed. Uh, historian Annette Gordon-Reed called it a slow motion genocide about what was happening to black people as and black people are arguing, I've got Second Amendment rights. We've got our Second Amendment rights. And the real response is, no, you don't. Because what those that Second Amendment was designed to do was to crush the rights of Black people.
0: We've spoken so far quite a lot on, on the South, but you make clear in your book that this is an issue across the entire nation. Um, and I want to fast forward the timeline a bit to look at Huey Newton and Bobby Seale and, and, and their work in the Black Panthers in, in the 1960s. So how did they feel about their right to bear arms?
1: Right, and so one of the things that you had happening there was you had massive police brutality raining down on the black community in Oakland, California. And there was no sense of accountability in the system. Black Cops could kill black people at will. They could beat them up at will, arrest and torture at will, and no accountability. And so that accountability r- arose from the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, led by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale, who were the co-founders. And their, one of their key strategies was to police the police, they knew what the laws were. They knew what the California code said about the carrying, open carrying of weapons. And so they made sure that they had licensed weapons and the kinds of weapons that you could openly carry. And they also knew the distance that they had to maintain from an arrest. And so they would... Pull up at an arrest with their op- with their guns, looking at the police, and they're leathered up, head berated up, and 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 the police did not like it at all. And so they would tr- every time they tried to arrest the Panthers, they couldn't get them on anything because the Panthers knew the law. The Panthers knew that their guns had to be licensed. They knew they couldn't have sawed off shotguns. They knew about the kind of bullets whether you're what constituted being a loaded weapon. They knew all of that. And so the police ran to Don Mulford, who was an assemblyman in the California legislature and said, help us, help us. The Panthers are a problem, a serious problem. And Mulford crafted with the help of the NRA language to ban open carrying of weapons, a way to make the Panther strategy for, um, policing the police, illegal. Now, one of the things that I lay out in the book is that we did have in the South, the Deacons for Defense. The Deacons for Defense were a group of men who protected nonviolent civil rights workers. And they didn't carry the the, the, the massive fear and hatred and anger because what they were doing is they were fending off the Klan, And the Klan had lost all of its aura and its shine from the previous decades. Now it was seen as a virulently racist organization that was un-American. Whereas the Panthers were going after policing the police and the police have this aura around them of being the defenders of of particularly white society, the, the, the foundation of law and order and so having the the panthers going against the police saying the police are absolutely brutal in our communities and we need accountability that didn't register what also didn't register was that in america it's really easy to try to isolate virulent racism to the South to say Mississippi. And everybody nods and goes, well, yes, Mississippi. But, you know, when you say California, the image is of palm trees. It's of freedom. It's of liberty. It's of a nice, easy lifestyle. Uh, expensive homes. Uh, it's it's the land of opportunity where you, anybody can make it there. So California has this national narrative of being a great place, and so to have the Panthers talk about the violence raining down on the black community by the police, it's not registering. It's not hitting the national register the way it does when you have the Klan and these white supremacists doing the damage to the black community in the South.
0: Over the recent year, you are seeing more public opinion, you know, even white public opinion turned against the police in, in a different way. Um, what have the renewed Black Lives Matter uprisings over the past year um, meant to you in terms of your scholarship?
1: What it shows me is what I've seen all along is that black people will fight for their rights, fight for their humanity, um, and how essential that fight is and how essential controlling the narrative is, um, so, because the narrative of black people as dangerous, as a threat, um, as inherently criminal, as violent, has been used to justify these killings. Um, and so you think about one of the, I end the book for instance, with juxtaposing Kyle Rittenhouse with Tamir Rice. And and Kyle Rittenhouse was a a, a white 17 year old, who took a uh, an illegally acquired AR-15 uh, across state lines to Kenosha, Wisconsin, where there was a protest because a black man had been shot in the back seven times by the police in front of his children. And Kyle Rittenhouse comes there as part of some defending democracy kind of group. Um, and the police welcome this 17-year-old carrying an illegal AR-15 going, oh, we're so glad you're here. We appreciate you guys. And want some water? I know it's really hot out here tonight. Uh, Rittenhouse then goes on to gun down three men, killing two, seriously wounding a third. When he walks back towards the police with his hands up as if to surrender, the police just go right by him. They don't register that this man, this teenager is a killer, is a killer. Um, they don't feel threat. They don't see threat. Meanwhile, with Tamir Rice, who was a 12-year-old boy playing alone in the park in Cleveland, Ohio, and Ohio is an open carry state. And those laws say you can openly carry a weapon as long as you're not threatening anyone. And so he's playing in the park with a toy gun. Granted, it doesn't have the orange tip on it that says, hi, I'm a toy. But again, open carry says you can carry it as long as you're not threatening. Anybody? The police pull up, and within two seconds, they gun that 12-year-old child down. And they said he was a threat. He was dangerous. We were afraid. So how a 12-year-old black child playing alone in the park with a toy gun creates enormous fear where he is gunned down and killed. But a 17-year-old who kills two men and seriously wounds a third is just ignored by the police because he's not a threat, really exemplifies uh, what the protests were about this summer. And so as I'm writing this book, I'm seeing that long history of protest, of activism, as well as the massive racial disparities in the ways that the laws and the ways that policing and the ways that the state raids down on Black people versus on whites.
0: Yes, and and speaking of um, another recent American news event that has a long history, what was it like watching the um, January storming of the Capitol as a historian and tracing that long history of... (laughs) You're saying, oh my God, over again. (laughs) Oh my
1: God, oh my God. It was, it was, it was, as a historian, I looked at this in, in, in multiple lenses. One was the lens of whites being unwilling to accept the results of an election and, and using violence as the means to, to try to overturn that election. When you think about the U.S. Civil War, that was because they could not come to grips with the fact that Abraham Lincoln had won that election. So they're like, he won, we're done. And so they attack Fort Sumter and, and launch the Civil War. You had the Colfax massacre in 1873 where whites in Louisiana did not like the results of an election. And so they stormed the the courthouse, which was the, the seat of democracy in Colfax, Louisiana. And that was protected by a black militia. They slaughtered that militia. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, no crime here. It was the overturning, the coup in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898, where whites did not like the results of an election. And so they slaughtered black folk and overthrew that government and installed who they wanted. And the governor of North Carolina was like, fine, fine. You are now the government there in in Wilmington, North Carolina. And so when I saw what was happening here at the Capitol on January 6th, it was one in a long series of whites being angry. And this anger was at the the temerity of African-Americans and of indigenous people and of Asian-American Pacific Islanders and of Hispanics to vote, to actually vote and not vote overwhelmingly for the man who launched birtherism? And for the man who who created the Muslim ban? For the man who was like build the wall? For the man who was you know Mexicans are rapists and criminals? uh, for the man who who defined uh, nations in Africa and in the Caribbean as s hole countries? You know why don't why don't we get immigrants from Norway instead of from these s hole countries? because you did not have you did not have the strength of the diversity of America voting for that mess his followers were enraged and determined to stop the count stop the certification of the election and install this man in power what i saw was what i called in a previous book white rage um, and there I lay out that for every major advancement of African Americans toward their civil rights, you have this massive push back, um, uh, in terms of policy and policy that also protects the violence that rains down to undermine those rights. January 6th was white rage. And now what we're dealing with here in America are having these Republican legislatures, Pass these voter suppression laws that are designed to stop or make it much more difficult for Black people, for Hispanics, for Asian American Pacific Islanders, as well as young people and poor people to vote.
0: Yes. Um, and, and my final question is kind of on that. That, that man is no longer in the White House. Um, you have a more progressive government in power. What, what is the mood in America and, and what are your own
1: hopes? We're on the precipice. Um, the, the, the movement of the Republicans to, to disfranchise, uh, millions of American citizens and the, the, the inability of our Congress to pass national legislation to protect the right to vote and the, the, the calls for a coup, uh, the arming of of these militias, the anger of these militias uh, of 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 whites willing to storm the the citadels of democracy, and and having elected officials go, oh, those were just tourists on on January sixth. So making light of a coup, making light of the fact that one hundred and forty officers uh, were wounded, you know fingers were, were were chopped off, uh eyes gouged out. I mean just brutal, brutal. And to make light of that, you see that what's happening is the the intensification of white supremacy. The the fear. I mean you hear it on ooh, Fox, uh where Tucker Carlson talks about uh, we're being replaced. Uh, these these people who aren't Americans are replacing the real Americans, uh, which is to define a real American as white only. Uh, and and so this is this is where we are. We've this nation is in a battle for its soul. Um, where my hope is is that the civil society, those organizations that continue to mobilize and to organize and put pressure on our elected officials and who galvanize our our communities to engage. That's where the hope is.
0: Thank you very much for your time, Carol Anderson.
1: Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you.
0: And that's all from us. Thank you very much for joining us this week. Goodbye and see you next week.